This Institute of Ideas podcast is called The New Populism and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. Welcome to this opening keynote of the Battle of Ideas 2016. We're here to discuss the new populism. My name is Claire Fox. I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. And this is a very important discussion. And in a way, one of the issues that's likely to be something of a theme throughout the whole weekend, I would think. I'd like to say that we we were really pleased to be and have been working with the Time to Talk network, which is a a European network of debating organisations, and they're associated with this festival and the Institute of Ideas works with them. And one of the big issues that they are pursuing over the next couple of years is looking at the rise of populism in Europe. And you can understand why it's such a big discussion for us. And if you think about all of the discussions around the Brexit campaign here in the UK but also the rise of Donald Trump to a certain extent, even people like Bernie Saunders in America and uh, Jeremy Corbyn, then, of course, the kind of growth of organisations like Germany's anti-immigrant alternative for Germany, Pegida, you've got the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, Francis Marine Le Pen. I mean, all of these different and various groups are called populist And it's a very sort of peculiar moment when you can kind of lump all of those people in and in the middle of it all you also have Podemos in Spain, the Five Star Movement in Italy, Syriza in Greece and so on. What the hell is going on, as I've just said in my opening? What does all this mean? It appears to be the throwing up of all the old certainties of uh, political parties of the past and then these kind of very... Big popular movements, populist usually used as a term of insult. Are we to be frightened? Is it a big democratic renewal? Let's find out. We've got a fantastic panel. They cannot possibly do justice in the time that we've asked them to, but we've asked them to give an intellectual provocation of between uh, five to seven minutes each. And we also have a, a very international panel to reflect the fact that this is indeed a very international phenomenon. I'm going to introduce the speakers in the order in which they uh, will speak. They'll start the conversation off, and then we open it up to a public conversation with you. And we'll have lots of toing and froing between you and the panel after they've made their introductions. Okay, so let's meet our panel. So first person who will speak is Nick Cater, who is the Executive Director of the Menzies uh, Research Centre, He's a columnist for The Australian and has come all the way from Australia to be with us, which is fantastic. He uh, studied sociology at the University of Exeter, however, so that'll give you a clue (laughs) as to the fact that he was from here originally. He joined the BBC and went to Australia in 1989, spent 24 years at News Corps Australia. Uh, He edited The uh, Weekend Australian from 2007 to 2012, and he's the author of The Lucky Culture, which is on sale in the bookshop, and is also one of Boris Johnson's favourite books. 
Then we're going to hear from uh, Jill Rutter, who is Programme Director of Better Policymaking at the Institute for Government. She's currently leading a project on how to make tax policy better, for which she should probably, uh, uh, you know, get commended and all sorts of uh, things. She's been the Director of Strategy and Sustainability at DEFRA. She's worked at the Treasury. She spent two and a half years seconded to number 10 policy unit in the 90s. She's, in other words, worked at the heart of government. She's also interested in how government works. And I think her reflections, I always find her very uh, thoughtful and interesting anyway, but her reflections on how this will play out and how policy people are thinking are invaluable, I think, to this discussion. Then we'll hear from Ian Dunn, who is the editor of politics.co.uk, which is a media partner for this festival and a great read and something which you should all read regularly. Um, Ian is the political editor also of the Erotic Review, which you should only read if you're of a certain age. Um, he's a pundit on Sky News, BBC, contributor to a variety, wide variety of newspapers, The Guardian, The Times and so on. Um, and uh, he's one of the people I most enjoy disagreeing with on everything, almost. Um, but he's uh, always prepared to speak his mind and, uh, and that's what's uh, really useful about having him here. So it's great to have Ian here. We're then going to hear from Ivan Krastev, who is the chairman of the Centre for Liberal Studies in Sofia. He's a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, founding board member of the European Council on Foreign Relations and member of the International Crisis uh, uh, Group's Board of Trustees. His books in English include Democracy Disrupted, In Mistrust We Trust, The Anti-American Century, and he's writing a book on um, uh, Russian politics, and he'll be speaking on Eastern Europe tomorrow. And Ivan's one of the foremost uh, uh, European intellectuals who's thought about and lived at the heart of uh, this very issue. And then finally, we'll hear from Bruno Waterfield, who's a Brussels correspondent for The Times. He's been reporting on European affairs for the last 12 years, first from Westminster and then from the capital of the European Union. He previously worked for the Daily Telegraph for, uh, for many years. He's a frequent uh, Battle of Ideas speaker and a speaker at our academy. Uh, he's something of the uh, um, uh, public intellectual who works in the media, a rarity. Uh, can we give them all a, a warm welcome, please? Okay, Nick, uh, can you kick us off, please? Well, thank you, Claire. And I must say it was especially delightful to land at uh, Heathrow yesterday, not just for the, being released from uh, 23 hours of confinement uh, in 63F, uh, but uh, because it was my first taste of post-Brexit uh, Britain. Uh, and I have to say, as an Australian, it is a wonderful place. It is a place where the Australian dollar now buys something uh, <laughs> and where we will no longer have to put up with the Barmy Army's cruel chant, $3 to the pound, doodah, doodah. <laughs> but I don't want to buy into the fractious debate about Brexit per se and how much that fits into this discussion of populism, except to bring you news, news from the other side of the world, uh, that Brexit had a material and quite unexpected impact on the Australian political climate. Uh, in July, Australians uh, re-elected a centre-right government uh, with the promise that they would hold a plebiscite on same-sex marriage uh, as soon as possible, in effect early next year, uh, and that if the plebiscite went in favour of same-sex marriage, they would enact that in legislation by the middle of next year. Uh, you would have thought, of course, that the pro-same-sex mar marriage lobby would have been uh, delighted with this because they've been telling us for some time that the opinion polls 
was strongly in favour of same-sex marriage uh, by a majority of about 60 or 70% of what they like to call marriage equality. Uh, but no, Brexit had a chilling effect as suddenly it dawned on them that this was a vote they might actually lose. Uh, why? Because the plebiscite, they said, would release subterranean forces of ignorance, uh, that homophobes would be empowered to speak out, that they would sow f- seeds of fear and hate and, and the cu- clueless populace would succumb to these arguments. Uh, well, this week, the opposition uh, Labour Party, which had been standing on the fence, uh, joined the Greens in opposing the plebiscite on, green ma- on, on same-sex marriage, Uh, The bill in the Australian Parliament is now dead and there is no hope of of same-sex marriage being introduced in Australia uh, for at least another three years till we get a change of government. It's a victim, I think, of an indirect, uh, a a piece of collateral, if you like, in this growth in populism, if populism is indeed the right word, and that may be a subject for discussion later. Uh, What's clear, however, that is across the globe, the political establishment is on the defensive. Uh, We've seen the rise of these non-conformist politicians who are breaking the rules and getting away with it. Uh, The intelligentsia, of course, has responded in its uh, usual way uh, by completely missing the point. Uh, At first, they tried to persuade us that Trump was a joke. I mean, what could be funnier uh, than pissing on the presidency? Uh, And when it looked as if Trump might actually win, they, they warned us that he was a demagogue, Uh, that, as one commentator put it, Trump is the most dangerous man in the world, the leader of a new hate-filled authoritarian movement. That correspondent, I have to tell you, was writing for Der Spiegel, uh, so the implied link to the 1930s uh, is clear. The demagogue thesis uh, rests, of course, on the associated idea that the American people are zombies, uh, that uh, there are many Americans, of course, who would agree uh, that they are, uh, not them, of course, or their, their hipster friends who joined together for a deconstructed latte in the, in the local cafe, but those other Americans, uh, the ones in Hillary Clinton's basket of lib- deplorables. Well, for me, the, the, the right-wing nutjob theory, if I can call it that, and the stupid American redneck theory uh, get us no closer to understanding what's really happening. They're self-serving arguments. They're just another way of signalling that we know best, we are better than you. And every time, of course, they express that sentiment, it reminds another group of Americans why they prefer the orange-skinned vulgarian with the machine-washable hair uh, to crooked Hillary. So, go back a bit. Five years ago, I started to write a book uh, about the emerging cultural divide in Australia... Uh, that was becoming the dominant fault line in public and, and political debate. Uh, it, it seemed to bear little relationship uh, to the old kind of divides that we had, the, you know, the divide between the workers and bosses, uh, city and country, Catholic and Protestant, that was particularly strong in Australia, uh, that have tested democracy from time to time. What we were seeing was the rise of a new class, educated, professional, sophisticated city dwellers, uh, who were at odds with the rest of the country. Uh, they live uh, in what, what I called the goat's cheese zone, um, the consumption of goat's cheese being a sort of regular uh, code for a range of attitudes and behaviours which I'm sure most of you here will be familiar. Australia, I argued in that book, had a new ruling class. In fact, it was its first ruling class because up until then Australia had been a beautiful egalitarian nation. 
And yet we're now lumbered with this university-educated nobility uh, that presumes it has superior insights into the world and has better manners uh, than the rest of us. For the first time in Australian history, snobbery has been legitimised. Indeed, it's necessary because the superiority of this new class uh, rests on defending a code of behaviour, uh, political correctness, if you like, that maintains their monopoly on the truth. Uh, the emergence of this new class, of course, has turned politics in Australia, as it has here and much everywhere else it's ha- occurred, upside down. Politicians just don't know where to turn. Uh, the insiders and the outsiders don't have differences of opinion. They had opposite worldviews. If you please the goat's cheese zone, you'll infuriate the outsiders. The conventional politicians, therefore, have had to choose. And since most of them live and work in the extended goat's cheese zone, uh, some distance, I have to say, from many of their constituents, uh, most of them side with the insiders, with the journalists, with the commentators, with the public servants and the entire expert class. Now, the rise of the anti-politician and people like Trump is a reaction to that. Uh, Their manifesto is quite uncomplicated. Uh, You can express it in five words, I'm not like them. My prediction is that we will not be returning to normal any time soon, if indeed what we used to think of as normal is normal. Uh, Even if Trump loses, and and, and looks like he probably will, the, the, the difficult and puzzling question for the New York and Washington sophisticates is why at least four out of ten Americans have stuck with him to the bitter end. Why did their barrage of uh, sneering and mocking, why after all of that did the deplorables not see sense and instead champion the fact they were deplorables? So I think we're stuck in this self-reinforcing loop of behaviour at the moment. Uh, The insiders, insiders need to sneer at the rest to maintain their presumption of cultural superiority Uh, The sneering unites the outsiders and reinforces their beliefs that that the only way to fix the joint is that they must first bust it up. Well, what's the way out of this? Over to you. Excellent start, Nick. Good bit of provocation there. Next is Jill. Okay, so in Nick's terms, I'm probably the view from the goat's cheese zone. Technocrats, technocrat, I work for the Institute for Government, which is a think tank dedicated to making government more effective. So it slightly believes that government can be more effective, so that may put us in a, in a different position. So we're asked whether uh, the new populism is a harbinger of democratic renewal. Uh, I'm going to argue that actually it risks further undermining trust in politics um, and politicians. Populism basically is an easy strategy for oppositions. It can give voice to underlying frustrations. It works as sort of, you know, Yelp for help. But I think as the Brexiteers are discovering now, it's rather harder when you actually get asked to put into practice what you said you would do. So there's some populist policies that are relatively easy to do. You can change the values and the tone of political debate. Uh, I have to say, I think the realisation last year was, uh, for me, that... Political correctness basically just meant being slightly less horrible to other people, and therefore I think it's possibly worth defending. But anyway, but I think you need to then think through some of the consequences of translating those changed values, as we've sort of seen uh, in the last, uh, last few months. But I don't think populism is actually really the preserve of the populist politicians. Um, policy can't just be based on assertion. 
when, I was little, when I was little, my father, when he didn't want to have an argument, I would say, why do I have to do that? And he'd say, because I say so. Uh, because I say so, I don't think it's necessarily a good enough reason. Um, I think policy works better if it actually bears some relationship to facts, data, bits of analysis, and stuff like that. Basically, bad facts make for dud policies. So I think it's wrong to regard populism as the preserve of the so-called populists. Uh, we've seen lots of what we might call mainstream politicians dally with populism or whatever. So, for example, uh, you know, Reagan, quite a mainstreamish politician in terms of current debate, just asserting that if you cut taxes, the Laffer curve will work and deficit will go down. Gordon Brown. Uh, claiming that he'd abolished boom and bust in the face of all sort of normal economic theory, only to be slightly blown off course by the biggest bust uh, since the 1930s. Um, George Bush asserting mission accomplished in Iraq in the face of all the evidence that mission hadn't really been accomplished. And most recently, only this week, we've seen the evaluation of the Troubled Families Programme, which David Cameron launched as a great big sort of flagship to deal with the 120,000 families who placed huge burdens on public services. He was told at the time that actually his 120,000 weren't that, and surprise, surprise, uh, if you base your thing on duff numbers, you don't deliver the results you do. So I think it's wrong to regard populism as the preserve of people who we now see as populists. These people, I think, politicians who pander to populist sentiment without having a proper debate with the public actually uh, connive in these problems. Institute for Government did some polling in the wake of the... uh, wake of the referendum on what people wanted. And what was quite interesting, this in light of Michael Gove's uh, everybody hates experts, experts have sort of beyond their sell-by date. Actually, that wasn't a view shared by people. Over 80% of people, leavers or remainers, all said they basically wanted experts to be consulted by politicians when they're making policy decisions. They said they wanted decisions based on evidence. But, really interestingly, there's a gap winding up on whether people think politicians will actually deliver. And one of the big fissures our polling found was the difference between the leavers and the remainers. People generally are quite sceptical about whether politicians will deliver. They say that's what they want them to do. They want them to keep their promises and they want to deliver results. Uh, But we found that 41% of leavers think the government will improve public services in the coming years. Only... Uh, 15% of Remainers think the government's going to do that. So the problem is, if you have governments who basically are elected on slightly populist fantasies, I think when they fail to come through and deliver, then you will see trust in politics and politicians weakened further. So rather than more democratic renewal, I think it's a recipe for more alienation and apathy. So if I was sitting in government now and I was told my mission was to deliver a country that works for everyone, I might be looking a bit askance at what that actually meant. Such perfect timing that you took me unawares there. Okay, Ian, your thoughts then. Yeah, I don't think the word populism really gets us very far. It's not helpful for a couple of reasons. The first one is, generally speaking, it is a negative comment to make. So it doesn't really tell you how popular something is. It doesn't really tell you much about the political quality of it. It just tells you what the assumptions are of the person using the word, which doesn't really get us very far at all. 
Secondly, is sort of associated with a lot of political movements which just aren't very popular. I mean, by the time that people start using it for Jeremy Corbyn, you just think, well, that just doesn't work. I mean, you know, this man has a policy where he wants to leave the single market but maintain freedom of movement. Now, whatever you might think of that policy, it is not a popular policy. And so to call it populism just sort of means that the word clearly doesn't really have any proper substance to it. I think when we use this word populism we're really just seeing a fraction of something quite profound that's happening to us. I think that this moment in time is a furnace where things are changing very, very rapidly in the way that we conduct politics and where the centre of power lies. And that isn't really to do with populism. That's to do with something more complicated. And we can list it very, very briefly. These are ideas. I mean, they're, they're nowhere near to a sort of full assessment of where we are. But it gives some indication of how we might have got here. Um, I think we need to look, first of all, at technology and what the internet has done to us, the way that it has allowed us to control information so that we really create our own digital echo chambers so that we can just mainline our own opinions back into ourselves without ever really being challenged on them and without ever really coming across information which actually opposes us. That's partly what's made us so pathetically sensitive on right and left towards ideas, the, the perpetual squeals for people to be shut up because they expressed an opinion. The last one, of course, was Gary Lineker yesterday, who had the bad sense to express even a modicum of compassion for another human being and therefore is actually currently on the front page of newspapers as they demand that he loses his job for having done so. The other side of the technological aspect is the fact that lots of people in developing countries and third world countries suddenly were given access to see what our lives were like in the West. And that triggered a desire for many people to improve their lives and come here. Now, part of the migrant wave is to do with refugees and is to do with fleeing persecution and warfare and tyranny. Part of it is also people who just want a better life that has contributed to it. So technology has these two sides to it. And what kind of society is it that they're coming into? They're coming into one that is in the West, increasingly disinterested in the subject of truth, in the concept of evidence, in any of the basic enlightenment principles that we were brought up on. And that process started a long time ago. It has been made much worse by technology and by the digital echo chambers that we have made. That is a very profound influence on it. But it started before then. I mean, it's, I mean it, it, it could go you know, really quite far back. I mean, you're alluding to, to regular... Actually, I, I, would, I would start putting, you know, the real sort of bookcase is Iraq where suddenly you get this sense, this fundamental break with trust in the government and its ability to tell you the truth. And that was the case for how the government, how Labour did all sorts of things. I mean, they were perpetually launching consultations to which they already knew the answer that they were going to get and the conclusion which they were going to draw. If you remember the sacking of uh, David Nutt as chair of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, this is a man who was brought in to come up with a statistical system in order to evaluate drugs harms. He was specifically brought in to do this. And when he did do it and came up with a table that said, well, actually, look at this, magic mushrooms and cannabis really just don't do any harm whatsoever, and alcohol and uh, cigarettes do really a tremendous amount, he had to be sacked. He had to be sacked specifically because he was telling the truth. And no minister ever tried to suggest otherwise. Alan Johnson, who did it, who's now held up as this sort of you know, great Labour saint, but in fact as this lunatic authoritarian. You know, as you said at the time, you know, the, the scientists who's echoing Churchill, scientists you know, should be on tap, but not on top. The idea being no one tried to even challenge the fact that this was true. It was true, and therefore he had to go. 
And we saw that process go on and on, and it continued under the Tories. We had Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, saying, I'm going to get rid of health tourism. When people said, there really isn't any health tourism, said, there's a perception of health tourism, and we really need to deal with that. This idea that perception itself has some kind of objective life and therefore must be counted, something which, if you notice the way that Labour MPs talk about freedom of movement now, is precisely the language that they use. They don't bother trying to question any of the fact that we're quite demonstrably clear that it's economically beneficial for this country, and mostly beneficial for wages as well, actually. Um, instead, they say, well, look, there's a perception, and that has to be addressed. We're in the world of the subjective. We find it impossible to break ourselves out. The subjective is now objective. We've given up any concept of evidence. And so, therefore, when these great migrant waves come in, we see this ability within that kind of completely post-fact political environment to turn them into the people who are responsible for what are ultimately very complex very difficult and nuanced political and economic issues, the most predominant of which is the fact that since the financial crash, but even before then, wages have stagnated. People are not getting richer. There is not enough housing in this country. These are the politics of what is happening. These are the core aspects that need to be changed. And instead, and yes, I'm going to use the word demagogish politicians and frankly quite cynical, scheming people who think that they can twist the existing politics to their own divisive ends have grasped on the post-truth culture, have grasped on the, cha- the shifting migration flows that are, that are around us and used it to blame as often as they can minorities for what are really ultimately quite complex issues. Insofar as populism exists, that is what it is. Uh, Thanks, Ian. Um, I think there's a a lot of interesting ideas there, but I also want to come back to you on whether that whole issue around a kind of split between a metropolitan elite or the the goat's cheese crowd and the mass of people actually exists or whether that's actually a post-factual myth as well, because that that might be worth uh, exploring. But some really useful things that you've raised there. Okay, um, Ivan, uh, can we have your thoughts, please? Thank you very much. These days, if you want to be provocative, you should go mainstream because nothing is more provocative than yesterday's common sense. Uh, and I'm saying this because in a certain way, and I'm going to give you an example, because I also agree that the word populism now covers too much things in order to have a meaning. But there was a beautiful novel by Saramago called Death with Interruptions. And this tells the story of a society in which suddenly people stop dying. And the first three months, there was a kind of total euphoria, nobody is dying anymore. But then the problem started. First was the church. If nobody is dying, it means nobody is resurrecting. No place for the church. <laughs> and then the insurance companies. If nobody is dying, they're dying. And then the pension funds. But then people that have been taking care of a very sick and old people, uh, they start to become totally depressed because these people are never dying. You are basically all the time spending uh, time taking care of them. So they organize a kind of a cabala to smuggle them to the neighboring country where people still can die. And then the prime minister went to the king and said, listen, if we don't start dying again, we do not have a future. I'm saying this because I do believe that the plot, what we are seeing, and really there is a major transformation of politics, has to do with a total change in the way people are perceiving globalization, perceived both as freedom of people, freedom of ideas, freedom of goods and capitals. This is the new, the best and the worst happen to be the same. 
And this is why the situation is so idiotic, and this is why basically populism is becoming so strange, and you have a people who very intensively are telling you something, but you don't know exactly what. Uh, because strangely enough, for many people, the fact that you can travel before, even five years ago, open borders was good. Because open borders means tourists. You can be a tourist or tourists are coming. And there is nothing better in the world than tourists. They're coming, they admire your country, they spend the money there and they're living. And then the same people are becoming immigrants. And then you start to have a problem with them. And freedom of idea. Freedom of ideas 10 years ago means that basically Russians can watch BBC. But now it means that Brits can watch Russia today. <laughs> uh, and all these things start to change. And this is the nature of the change. It's not that something that you basically hate is going to be replaced for something that you hope for. The problem is that the best and the worst is the same. And this is, uh, in my view, explains some interesting phenomena which were going around populism. And I'm just going to give you three examples and uh, 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 stop on this. Listen, part of the problem with the refugee crisis was Eastern Europe. Totally hostile, anonymously hostile. The problem with these Europeans was seen from outside. Why they're doing this when first they're the one that emigrates so much? Secondly, why they're doing this when they're not migrants? In Central and Eastern Europe, in Slovakia in 2015, 169 refugees came and ate, took an asylum. So why? And I do believe here technology was mentioned. Demography is the other story that explains part of the things that is happening in places like Europe, but also the United States. What we see is the rise of the threatened majority, mainly the ethnic groups which believe that demographically they're losing. Look basically at Trump people. This is basically the aging white middle class, which basically said we have been the winners of yesterday, but probably we're not going to be the winners of tomorrow. Demographic uh, fear is particularly strong in small nations. For example, I'm Bulgarian. We are 7.5 people. According to the UN projections, in the next 40 years, we're going to lose 27% of our population. The idea that in 100 years, nobody is going to speak Bulgarian anymore is real. So strangely enough, this best world is coming with two options. Demography is telling you in 100 years there are going to be a world without you, and technology is telling you that in the next 30 years, and this was the UK state uh, government study, 43% of all existing jobs in the European Union are going to be automatized. So no place for you and no jobs for you. And then people start panicking. And as a result of this panicking, you have kind of emergence of a political leaders which totally replace consistency with intensity. This is the most important. Basically, Mr. Trump, uh, I find him slightly boring, I should say, uh, but what really promotes him is the intensity. He's telling you that everything that he's saying, this is basically uh, the most important thing that you're going to ever hurt. And people relate to his intensity, not to his messages, because he does not know himself where he's going to stand on certain issue in this particular moment. Uh, but this is not only Mr. Trump, this is everywhere. Uh, and I do believe this is part of the story, and here's my uh, uh, second question. Do we believe that this type of populism, both on the left and the right, are going to be progressive in a way? I'm much more skeptical about it. And I'm skeptical exactly about this. This is a political intensity, and the crisis that we see is provoked by a fear about the future and not about the hope about the future. This is not the future that, in a certain way, we much want to see. 
we start much more to like the past. Uh, see, for example, the Mr. Trump slogan, let's make America great again. Let's go back. So in a certain way, this is a radical nostalgia. Uh, and I find this important, and here I go to the, uh, 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 to the last story, and this has a lot to do also with the cultural changes of 1968. And this is my last point. Look at Mrs. Clinton and Mrs. Trump. These are the two faces of 1968. She, the progressive policy agenda. Emancipating anybody whom you find. He, authenticity. Be yourself. And to be honest, he is himself. So from this point of view, this type of a two also cultural trends that have been opened with a major change in 1968, now they're clashing together. And I do believe that one of the, my major definition of what basically populism is, is democratic politics at the moment when future is perceived as a threat. I'll stop here. Okay, thank you. Okay, some very interesting ideas there about the ideas around radical nostalgia, which I think we'll, we'll come back to, um, and whether there's any possibility of anything in populism, whatever we define it as, as having anything progressive to say. Uh, but lots of interesting things there, and, and great stories as well. So let's finish off then with you, Bruno. Yeah, I, I want to try and think about what's really uh, behind um, it when we talk about populism a bit like um, Ian. And I want to make the point that really the debate um, about the new populism or, or the current moment um, usually uh, or invariably uh, misses the point. Usually or invariably when people talk about populism, it's an insulting and dismissive reaction to demonstrate distaste at a new intrusion of the public, real people, real living communities, not the sort of Gardenista, Hoxton class um, into politics. And I want to begin in, in, in 1850. Um, in spring that year, spring that year, it's Paris, um, the reactionaries, who are later to install a, an imperial dictatorship the following year, are planning to abolish universal uh, male uh, suffrage. And they're worried about populism. They're worried about allowing illiterate, ignorant uh, members of the mob um, to determine um, the direction of, of, of France. I and mean, they were debating a bill to withdraw universal male suffrage. Uh, Victor Hugo, the, the famous uh, novelist, made a passionate um, defence um, of uh, democracy. The session had to be closed amid, amid scenes. Um, and Hugo really nailed it. And he said the hostility to universal uh, male suffrage was because the French voter, as he put it, dares to use his vote to his fancy. He said, these people seem to have the audacity to imagine that they are free. And apparently another strange idea comes into their head that they are sovereign. Because he has the insolence to give an opinion in this peaceful form of a ballot and not to bow down altogether at your feet, then you are indignant. You get angry, you cry, we will punish you people. We will punish you people, you'll have to deal with us. It is your ignorance of the current country, the animosity that you feel for it, and that it feels for you. Now for me, that last sentence really captures um, what the new populist uh, moment uh, is about. It's your ignorance of the current country, the animosity that you feel for it, and that it feels for you. And that is very much 
um, the current uh, moment. The debate over populism and the sort of post-truth politics, and by the way, the term post-truth is just a trendy, uh, uh, self-flattering, conceited 21st century word for ignorant. When people say, oh, he's post-truth, they just mean, what an ignorant fucker. I mean, it's real contempt. So the whole expression, when anyone uses the term uh, populism, they're basically displaying their open uh, loathing um, and contempt um, for, uh, certainly in the case of Brexit, um, a majority of their countrymen and women. And don't those words of Hugo's really uh, ring a bell with the furious uh, denunciations of the 52% of British voters who had the audacity uh, to vote leave. What a strange idea that those British uh, voters should want to be uh, sovereign. How dangerously deluded, cry uh, the reactionaries, they must be xenophobias, uh, little Englanders um, and racists. And a populist today is someone who believes in something that really is uh, forbidden. They believe in the idea that a people can be sovereign. They believe in the idea that people in a difficult world, people can be at least in control as much as possible um, of the communities and societies in which they live and accountability should be organised on that basis. So there isn't a problem with populism in Europe. There is a problem with a political order that wants to keep the public um, out of politics, an order that seeks to place key political arguments such as immigration above the will of the voters locked away in supranational legal orders such as the EU or supra-political judicial or technocratic uh, bodies. It's an order that pretty much claims to be the end of history. Uh, Donald Tusk um, said that if the British um, voted for Brexit it would be the end of Western civilisation when it's a few months later and I look around I can still see civilisation. It's an order that preaches passivity in the face of something called globalisation. Sovereignty or self-determination, we are told, is impossible. And an irrational response to a world governed by impersonal forces, footloose corporations and technologies um, such um, as the internet. The myth that self-government is not possible, the myth of powerlessness, the myth that we cannot hold our state um, to uh, account is the ultimate abdication um, of responsibility and it has um, some real uh, consequences um, in politics. It is above all an order that regards the aspiration to popular sovereignty as either insolence or ignorance. Um, It is a culture war against the idea of self-determination which is accused of being nationalism or even worse nativism Popular sovereignty has become diminished. It's become hollowed out and robbed of the active aspect that led to representative democracy, self-determining communities of interest expressed in the public realm. And if we look at the, 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 the horrible, long-drawn-out death of the Labour Party as embodied in Jeremy Corbyn, we can see how true that is. Democracy is territorial. It is first and foremost about your own people. It is about citizenship. Citizenship is not an abstract legal order in an EU treaty or some other nonsense. A community of interest is rooted in a territory. It's rooted in the place where people live and work and develop interest and where citizenship is formed 
in the sense of contributions, participation, obligations, a relationship, and the freedom of those uh, communities. So technocratic arrangements that very much define the current political moment and order have liberated states and elites from societies, the peoples, and the nations. And this is a wholly negative development. Um, it's completely um, regressive. And populism, what's called populism, is the intrusion of the public trying to correct uh, to, to correct that situation. So back to Hugo. Populism is your, it, the, your horror of populism, your contempt for post-truth politics, is your ignorance of the current country, the animosity that you feel for it, and that it feels for you. Okay, stirring and provocative stuff there from uh, Bruno. Um, um, many things that I know will clash with what has already been said. So I, I, I'm, I'm only going to ask a couple of questions of the panel before coming out, so warning to the audience to get ready with your thoughts. But Ian, can I, can I start with you just in terms of that, regardless of what the term is, or what the phrase is that we use, that sort of sense that I know the populist like Farage will exploit... Um, about the sort of gap between the metropolitan elite and the masses and, and that kind of sense of people waking up after Brexit and saying, I don't know what country we're in, who are these people? Uh, which was what so many of my friends said. Who, who are these people? And it was like, you need to get out more. But, I mean, what do you... What do you... So there is a split there, and I think actually you're, you've actually said some very sensible things yourself and some of your criticisms of the way that liberalism has stopped speaking to the public are valid, I think. And I think at the heart of that is really the end of the economic argument in British politics. So once you see the victory of Thatcherism, and there's no more talk over the economics, you suddenly see the left and liberals give up on any kind of economic argument. That means that they detach completely from the Labour movement, where you see public meetings, where you see people getting together in rooms and talking, you know, for instance, people in actual working-class communities, rather than just, as we're saying, in Islington. So yes, there's a disconnect there. There's also a structural way that it was seen that the way to secure rights was through the courts, and that that did lead to a trend towards going away from debate and towards other structures. I think that's all valid. There is one final element to that, and I think it's something that's been going on with liberals and left-wingers in this country for a very long time. I mean, George Orwell used to talk about it, which is the left's inability to understand patriotism. And its disconnect there, its inability to use the language of, uh, really, which allows you to put identity in a box. That's really what it does. Nationalism is arguably the most dangerous thing in the world. What patriotism does, especially when expressed by progressives, is it takes that sentiment and it puts it in a safe place where it can be part of how you want to improve your community, improve your politics. Because the left hasn't had any language to discuss that, yes, it's become disconnected from many of the people it ceases to represent and leaves them in the hands of far, far more cynical and scheming people. Okay, so, Jill, one one thing I wanted to ask you was um, I thought that you made a really good point a point well made which is it's easy being in opposition for people who don't know by the way i fought for um brexit to get that out of the way people can walk out now but the reason i'm saying that is because most of the people who i know fought for brexit in this country didn't expect it to happen right so then you do meet people i mean this doesn't apply to me because nobody's ever asked me to organize anything but there, there are those people who are now having to organize in government who are basically saying oh god and and then everyone else going where's your plan and everyone going well no we were making a point so that that's fair enough but 
is it overly technocratic to say that, you know, there is only one plan? I mean, what I mean is, is it not the case that a popular revolt can then change the way that things are? That's what, how change occurs. I mean, you don't just have to be hopelessly in opposition. You maybe are able to change the way politicians think that they should be organised in society. For good or bad, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I mean, clearly the vote has completely changed the political landscape of the UK in a really, really interesting way. I mean, a bit of the sort of problem I have, I mean, you know, I was debating which way to vote, actually, but um, I won't let you guess which way I ended up voting, but was the sort of assumption about what everybody else would do, that, you know, there were all these willing EU people who, of course, would just, you know, open their borders, do a fantastic deal that replicated all the benefits of membership without any of the pains in the neck of membership, of which there are really quite a lot. Uh, so I think that's sort of one of the problems, is, is the sort of, you know, meeting your slogan of taking back control with the reality of it's actually not just in your hands, or it is in your hands on one basis, but that may not be the basis you want. And I, as somebody who likes spending my winters in Australia, I'm, uh, I'm the other side of Nick's equation, which is, can I really face going there and walking out of restaurants because it's just so expensive nowadays? So I think that is, that is a problem. I think one of the wake-up calls to people in government, as Andy Haldane, who's the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, made a really, really interesting speech just after the referendum in Port Talbot about the problems with lots of things. I've talked about facts and statistics and stuff like that, but he made a really interesting speech about the tyranny of averages, uh, that you can conceal millions of evils by looking at averages rather than looking beneath the stats. And he was pointing out that while you can have growth going like that, if it means the city's roaring away, London's roaring away, but everywhere else is doing really badly, and you don't reflect that in your policies, then you're going to have the wrong policies. And I think part of the wake-up of this is actually, you know, get granular, sort of look and really understand differences in a much more sophisticated way than we've done because otherwise people will say well you might tell us it's all going very well but it's not for me and politicians haven't had a response to that i'm just going to ask Ivan a question now then come to the audience and then i know that i haven't come to nick um, or, or, or bruno and i'll sort of take them back on the first round but Ivan, one thing i wanted to ask you was i wasn't entirely sure about your characterization of Hillary Clinton as being associated with emancipation. You know, of, of all the words and the people, I don't associate with one of those or with the other. But, but what, I, what, I, what I wanted to ask you was that discussion about people not understanding why anyone would vote Trump. You know, again, it's that who are these people? That has got a kind of lofty disdain. And, it, and even though I, I'm amused by Trump as much as anyone you you know there are millions of people who are going to vote for Trump regardless I was in um, Vienna recently and the Austrian um, um, election a far right nearly got elected millions of people voted but the people in Vienna were talking as though well I don't understand these weird people well there's an awful lot of them and are they just all ignorant uh, you know what I'm saying yeah. No, but listen, it's, it's not ignorant, but this is also part of uh, the new society in which we uh, live, and to be honest, the Internet contributed a lot to it. We don't have a common life anymore. Basically, the places where you are meeting other people are not very much there, one of them being the army. For example, where you have an obligatory, basically, military service, you are forced to see people who normally you do not see. It's not a great experience, probably, but you're learning something. Now people basically are staying 
in the groups of the like-minded people. They can be very different. Right-minded people right -wing, are talking to their own, and uh, the left-wing is talking to their own. And from this point of view, America is an incredible place because 50 year, years ago, 50% of the Americans were living in the counties where one or the other party can win the elections. Now, 70% of the Americans are living in one-party counties. Basically, one of the parties winning with more than 15%. So from this point of view, you go to New York, and you're not going to see anybody who is voting for Trump, and you go to other places where you're going to see nobody who is going to vote for Hillary. When I said that she represents 1968, this is basically on this language of we emancipating first blacks, women, and so on and so on. This was, this was one of the faces. Basically, you go with all this underprivileged group that should get into power. And on the other side is be authentic, be yourself, don't be political correct. Both of them have been there. Uh, but I'm saying this because at least for me there is also an interesting story. We don't understand, and we say that there is a major split, but the split is also within the individual. The problem with the globalization is that every one of us has kind of a certain type of questions of how this is all going to end up and so on and doing this and doing that. Is it good? Uh, can you control it? And this sovereignty talk, of course, is very powerful, but uh, this is also what uh, in Europe uh, you can call the Orban paradox. For sure, you have the right to protect your border, but be sure that then the other has the right to protect your border against you. So when you're going to put a fence on the border between Serbia and Hungary, then don't feel offended if the Austrians are going to put a border on yourself. And from this point of view, uh, the story is people also starting to forget why some type of a very territorial societies have been perceived as problematic. But one thing has disappeared totally, and I do believe this is quite important, and this is internationalist-minded working class for very good reason. Without the Marxism and the idea of a global revolution, the workers does not have any reason to be internationalist. Uh, the, the idea of the workers to be internationalist was that they are going to be a global communist revolution and then we are going to govern. But if this is not going to happen, and this is what we very much saw in place like Austria, is very much the shift of the working class on a much more protectionist position, both cultural and economic. 80% of the blue-collar workers in Austria voted for the far right. That's it. Okay, thank you. All right, there's already plenty of hands up. Yeah. Uh, Trump voters know exactly why they're voting for Donald Trump, just as people who voted for Brexit knew exactly why they were voting. The idea that people didn't know what they're doing is a nonsense. Greek people who voted in the referendum last year knew exactly why they were voting no to the deal on, on, on the table. Um, and that's because they understand that Politics is not working for them. The political establishment, the mainstream political parties are not working for them. You cannot actually separate the populists, the parties, or this very wide range of parties from the people, actually. And the idea that the populists are somehow traducing the people, that they will not serve them well, um, that may be the case. That's, a, that's an open question, but populism whether it's the populace or this revolt of the people, is an expression of the fact that politics, existing politics, on offer from the mainstream parties, is not working, is now completely disconnected from the people, has failed. Um, this is directed at uh, Jill, um, who proves she's part of the goat uh, munching 
fraternity of the elite separatists when she said that uh, PC is really being a bit more nice to people and therefore we should defend it. This is what I can't understand the left don't understand this. People understand that the intelligence, the elite separatist left, hate them, right? They don't understand why yet. The basis of what you call PC, which actually should be called into politics, is 100 years old in its evolution. And it's about the left solving its cognitive dissonance about why the workers in the West didn't rise up where the counterparts in, in Russia did ages ago. Right? And this is why the whole idea of, of, of inventing new vanguards, originally women, and then in, in the States, when all the Frankfurt School uh, inculcated all this in Columbia University and it, and it filtered down, then they saw these seeming revolutions in the civil rights women 68, the following year with, with uh, um, the, the, the gay revolt, if you like. And that's when we end up this triumvirate of, of these victim groups. That's what it, it's about hating the, the, the most of us. And, and hiding your own elitist separatism. Until the left get that, they're nowhere. So this is firstly for Nick. Why do you think the rise of the new class hasn't seen the rise of a new political movement at any other time in history? You know, the rise of the bourgeois class or the rise of the working class. We've seen new political formations. Why not now? And then more directed towards Jill and Ian. You're actually wrong that politics is, like, objectively about objective facts. It's not. You know, politics, first and foremost, is about freedom. And freedom can't always be quantified in objective measures. You know, my perception of freedom may not be the same as yours. And therefore, like, you know, politics does have something to do with subjectivity. And then more just towards Jill. If parties are trying to be too central, like you were saying, you know, trying to appeal to everybody, doesn't that kind of... um, Isn't that the reason why there's been a growth of alienation and apathy? Because nobody can see a distinction and nobody can say, well, I attach myself to that in a subjective manner. I hope Jill likes goat's cheese. I think she's she's (laughs) going to get that gag a few times. Um, Evidence. I want to know what this thing evidence is. Because the more I hear it, the more I feel I'm being told that I'm stupid. Um, And I say this, I've been involved in a campaign in Scotland against the named person, which is this thing where the state is giving a guardian to every child. And what's really interesting is there's been hundreds of articles, often in the Daily Mail and other places, defending family, defending privacy, defending all sorts of things. The Scottish government keeps coming back. Never once does it engage with any substantial point and always says... Again, the ideologues from the campaign against the named person are using misinformation. And then they just say their points. Misinformation, disinformation, the evidence suggests, and so on. And their policy is supposedly based on evidence. And their argument against us appears to be based on evidence. But they never have an argument. Um, And this seems to be a problem for me in terms of what this actually means. Uh, It seems that even the use of the term evidence now seems to be being used polemically and to tell people to shut up rather than actually having a discussion. And politics now, if you're deemed political, it's almost like saying you're a bigot. Or if you have an ideology, it seems to be that you're a bigot compared with the rational, nice people 
who use evidence. It's a question for Ivan, really, because in your book, Democracy Disrupted, you have a very nice example of two demonstrations which took place in 2013 in your country. One were the poor people who were demonstrating against higher electricity prices, and the other you called the rich and the beautiful who were demonstrating against corruption of the government. But the point which interested me was that you said the second group showed no empathy whatsoever with the first group and actually didn't even want to associate themselves with the first group in any way and felt more comfortable associating themselves with an international community, um, swinging EU flags and so on. And I sometimes think when we're talking about populism, maybe we forget that other side. There is also a very harsh defending your own privileges in this whole thing. And I, I was sort of wondering what, you know, what, what do you say about that? So, you know, it's not just one side being aggressive. It's the other side also very harshly defending its own privilege and calling this globalism. Okay, so I'm going to start with you, Nick. Anything you want to pick up at all? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think this is a very interesting point that's coming through about uh, the nature of the divide and that, that we basically, as I've observed in Australia and I think here too, there are two parallel universes going on, really, and that's why it seems to us that there's something kind of unreal about what's happening amongst the group we didn't see. This isn't new, incidentally. Um, I, I spent uh, uh, my, most of the 19... Um, uh, it was a long time ago, 1980s in, in, in Britain, uh, and I remember coming to the conclusion, after, I think the 1982 election, that I didn't know, I'd never met anybody, I couldn't imagine anybody who'd vote for Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and uh, I wasn't living in some you know, coal, coal mining town in northern England, I was living in London and working at the BBC. But that's what it was like. Uh, I think now that is intensified. I have and, uh, several bits of evidence I'll give you. Uh, Australians often say to me, look, I don't recognise your description of Britain. I've been to London. It's fantastic, you know, very affluent. People are living very well. They're very comfortable. <coughs> but, of course, these are people that arrive in Zone 1 and never leave it. Uh, not like me when I come. I have to drive out on the A303 and stop at the, uh, to see my, my, uh, my parents and stop at the, uh, the shopping centre at Basingstoke and buy a SIM card. Uh, and you realise that the world, you know, even in that short distance, is very different. So I think we, there are parallel universes, and, and I think that we're not... Uh, the, the, everything you, 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 you said was right about this, Ian, the, the, uh, you know, the, the internet is... We thought it was going to be this great broadening experience, you know, join the whole world in this great kumbaya movement. Instead, it's been silos. We live in our own world. We only listen to people that agree with us and so forth. That's happening. A lot of other things are happening. Uh, but at the root of it, it's, it, it does come down to me, the only, the only way of looking at this in any broad way is, is as a cultural uh, phenomenon, as a cultural divide, which is really universal. OK, so Bruno... I have just, just a couple of related points, really, which, which is that actually I don't think people do live in, in, in parallel universes. I don't think people do uh, live uh, in silos. The way in which we, we live our lives in many ways hasn't changed um, that much um, over the last 20 years, although the way that we think about the way in which we reflect on how we live our lives has changed a lot in the last 20 years. And I really believe that the belief of sort of silos and parallel universes and all these sort of insane uh, sort of tick box identities that people construct based on that is really an outlook of a, a quite small uh, group uh, of people in Britain, very uh, uh, strongly associated with certain parts. Um, of London. This is also takes us into the realm, believe it or not, of statistics. We've been using a word here quite a lot, and this word um, globalisation. And this word globalisation is taken 
um, as something that is as real as air or, or water uh, or the sun coming up in the morning. In fact, globalisation is an argument, and it's an argument that's constructed um, around um, certain statistics which are seen as the artefacts um, of uh, developments. Often they're actually the artefacts of political decisions um, that have been uh, taken as well. I think it's always very hazardous to build assumptions about the way in which um, the world uh, uh, works, um, quite rigid assumptions about the world, the way the world works, just based on artefacts without trying to unpick um, the trends behind them. For example, a very quick example, um, in the Eurozone, when bond yields um, became more or less the same for all the Eurozone countries, that means that the markets um, and people lending money to Eurozone countries treated Greece in the same way um, as Germany. Um, and it's an interesting artefact of the Eurozone. Why is it that Greek bonds are suddenly, uh, Greek debt uh, can suddenly, Greek can, get, can buy, borrow debt as cheaply as Germany all of a sudden? And people celebrated that. They said, oh, this is really good. This shows the Eurozone is working. This shows the Euro is such a success that Greece is now as strong um, as Germany. Of course, it was rubbish. It was, in fact, the opposite. It was the evidence of the asset bubble building in the Eurozone that has laid waste to countries like um, Greece and Spain. So statistics, such as uh, bond yields, um, are artefacts. And trying to explain those artefacts, trying to explain why they are there, and what trend they represent is actually the realm of argument, of ideas. Globalisation is not a fact, it is an argument. OK, thanks. Ivan? It's quite important, and the question is first, why there is not an empathy between different groups of our societies? Why social cohesion has so much declined? And this is true. I don't believe it's strongly about Bulgaria. And this probably explains... The interesting story about populism is not why people are voting for Trump or anybody else. I do believe that people always know for whom they're voting and why. The problem is what is going to be the result of the vote. And one of the interesting stories, which is worrying about populism, is not how good or bad this or that people are. They're not much good people to choose between anyway. The problem is different. The problem is that one of the major claims of a populist leaders is we are speaking on behalf of the true Bulgarians, true Poles, true Turks. When there was protest in Turkey in 2013, uh, Mr. Erdogan went on the, play, uh, on the square and said, I am the, we are the people, who are you? So from this point of view, of course, the problem is that each of the two groups tries to claim that the others doesn't matter for one way or the other. Probably elites believe that poor doesn't matter because first they don't de depend on them anymore. Why people before was much more interesting in the working class? I mean political elites. Probably not because they were more noble, but there were three things that made this important for them. First, it was also the Cold War. If you're not going to take care of the working class in your own countries, the Soviets will take care of it. The second was, basically, it was a tax-paying people. If you're not going to have the taxes, the idea of the national security and basically nationalism happened. But thirdly, because you cannot simply move out easily. What happened with the elite, and I do believe this makes people nervous for very legitimate reason, is that the elite has an exit option. When in Greece the crisis came, Greek elites get out of the country around one-third of the GDP for over one year. 
So in a certain way, you cannot have a control over somebody that can always leave. Uh, and from this point, if before the relations between the elites and the people, nevertheless, how difficult, it was like a Catholic marriage. Divorce was not possible. You should stay together. Now this is not the case anymore. And I do believe this explains this type of a nervousness. But part of the problem is that people using the populist vote, and this is very clear in Eastern Europe, is they believe that first, if you're majority, you can do anything you want. Okay, thank you. Jill. Okay, three things quickly. Political correctness. I think we need to find a language to talk about politics that isn't so horrible to each other. Hillary should never have called Trump supporters baskets of deplorables. That's politically incorrect. That's unacceptable. Equally, you know, if only women politician dares to say something and then gets a torrent of completely hate-filled abuse, that's horrible too. So let's just find a better zone where we can actually have proper political debates. Really interesting point from a man up there about Scotland and evidence. I think it's a really interesting question about whose evidence, what do you do with evidence? Uh, Government definitely privileges one sort of evidence. It conceals quite often what evidence it's using. It shouldn't do that. And the evidence of actually other people, evidence from people who are actually experiencing things is as important too. What I think we need to do is have a better conversation about what we're trying to do because ultimately politics is about trade-offs and actually we need to understand if we go one way, what are we trading that off against and really need to understand that. The idea that there are loads of free lunches out there is just not true. Okay, thanks. Hello. Uh, Well, because Greece has been mentioned repeatedly today and because I happen to be Greek, I just couldn't resist having to make a very quick comment. Um, It was mentioned that when the Greeks were voting for the referendum, they knew what they were voting for. Well, I regret to say that actually the majority did not know what they were voting for because the deal that they rejected with that referendum, they had to then... Uh, accept a worse deal from the European Union after that, and they had no option but to accept it. Greece is much worse off now than when it was when we were voting, and the problem is that they feel that they have no other option but to accept what is going on at the moment. So I hope when the UK were voting to leave the European Union, they they knew what they were voting for, but I hope they don't end up like Greece, not having to accept that they have no other option in the end when the actual negotiations are starting to take place. So for me, there is no way of voting in a referendum unless you know what your alternatives are. And I think in that respect, there are similarities between Greece and the UK in the sense that neither of the countries knew what their alternatives were going to be in case of a no vote. So we ended up as Greeks having no option. I hope you British, and I happen to have dual citizenship at the moment, so I hope that we British don't end up having with no options once Article 50 is actually get triggered. Okay, thank you. Can I just ask the people who are against this populism um, how they plausibly can say they're not behaving a little like the pigs in Animal Farm, the ones that said everybody's equal, but some are more equal than others. I really have more of a say than you. How can you say you're not behaving like that? And while we're on the subject of political correctness, as it just came up there, whenever people use that term, like people like yourself, why do you never actually explain a correct according to whose politics exactly? Because you always kind of shanghai the idea that what's correct must be correct according to your politics. You never think it might be incorrect according to somebody else's. So when you start saying things like, this is, in, is this, uh, this is putting out uncomfortable sentiments. Don't you really mean that they're just sentiments 
you're not comfortable with. And how does that work in a democracy? Hi, I've been out um, talking to people locally about Brexit um, recently, trying to get people talking about the referendum. Uh, live, live in a big Remain area. I voted um, leave, walked into my local pharmacist, um, big pillar of the local multicultural community, Asian guy, uh, told him what we were doing, thought I was going to get thrown out. He looked at me and then delivered this 20-minute, eloquent, passionate speech about why it was right to leave. I looked at him and I said, oh, that's brilliant, come along to a meeting and tell people about that. And he said, sorry, I can't do that, I'm doing yoga that night. <laughs> so my question is, um, it, can this new populism turn into any sort of a movement or is it destined to say, stay the silent majority? <laughs> OK, thanks. Uh, Ian, anything you want to pick up? So what is politics? Is it just freedom? I, I actually agree with you entirely. I mean, politics is basically the assessment of how to expand the quality of freedom for the greatest number of people. But that does not mean that objectivity does not exist and doesn't mean that evidence doesn't exist and that you don't base it on truthful statements. To say that Turkey is about to join the EU and there's nothing Britain can do to stop it is not a true statement. I mean, it is just false. So by virtue of the fact that politics is about the allocation of freedom, you're quite correct, does not necessarily mean that your other point holds. More importantly, this process by which we retreat away into our old identities, which is this response to globalization. I spend an awful lot of time arguing against sort of feminism and arguing against identity politics, and whenever you do that, you always find someone standing up speaking for all women, speaking for all ethnic minorities, as if what they say is the rule by, by which all of them think, that they are just one glob, one homogenous glob. And that is exactly what we are seeing here today. When people say, I mean... You're very wonderful in all ways, but nevertheless, to say that you're speaking for the country after a vote that was 48, 52% is just completely bananas. I mean, people out there are saying, the lot of us, the people, who are you to speak for how everybody thinks? I find that just completely bizarre. And the only way that we have got to this point where people think that they can speak by virtue of a homogenous group is because we've given up on liberalism. That is a word that is very, very unpopular, very unfashionable right now, but which I very proudly use for myself. And at the heart of liberalism is an idea, and that is that the individual comes first. The individual comes before the state, and they come before corporations, and they come before political parties. And when you focus on the individual, you will find that it's impossible for you to say, all Muslims think like this, all Brits think like this, all the working class thinks like this. This hysterical manner of thought has come about because we've given up on liberalism. And the sooner that we get back to it, the quicker they'll be able to put these myths to bed. Um, it, it picks up a little bit on this now, because it's interesting. And you know, one of Cameron's advisors was making this point the other day about the, uh, about the referendum. This, the, you know, the seeds weren't sown in the last couple of months. It had nothing to do with buses. Europe has been on a collision course with its people since the bungled attempt to produce the EU constitution eventually turned into the Lisbon Treaty, where they tried to say, we need to have democratic legitimacy for this project. As soon as they put out a referendum, couldn't get them, then said, actually, we don't need democratic legitimacy, it's okay, we'll just turn it into a Lisbon Treaty. Actually, a few years on, later on, we now discover that there are some big things in the Lisbon Treaty, which, such as Article 50, which perhaps you may have wanted to have the vote on. So actually, the, you know, the fact is, this has got nothing to do with what people said in the Leave camp, Questions around democracy and sovereignty are not the creations of Nigel Farage or a Daily Mail uh, uh, headline writer or Rupert Murdoch or any other force. The actual products of contestation that are happening in society. 
What happened was, for a long time, the people in charge said, this doesn't matter, we don't have to deal with it. The problem is, actually, at a certain point, you will have to deal with these things when something has gone wrong. Actually, the real nature, it seems to me, of populism at the moment, and this is there within Trump, and it's within a lot of different political groups, is that they are mostly, of course, opportunists. They're, they're people who are saying, we are speaking on behalf of the people. Actually, it's the fact that the people have just been disregarded for a long time that opens up the space for anger. And these people step in and claim to speak on behalf of it. They claim to say that we should therefore... Actually, this vote was about immigration. Well, we don't know what it was about in terms of whether it was immigration. You say it's about this or it's about that. Actually, it's the space of politics that gets opened up that we can have these discussions about what the people are and what they actually think, not just trying to take these things as a message that we act on. I like the idea of the people having more power. And so my question is... Uh, does first pass the post give enough voice and enough power to the British people, or do you think that should change? Okay, person sit next to you. On the uh, sort of the big question as to whether what we've seen is positive, negative, or a bit, you know, ambivalent, or we should still, you know, the, the jury's still out. I mean, I take the side that it's a, it's a, it's an essentially positive step. And the reason I say that, drawing, linking to what Jill's uh, reference to Andy Haldane's speech. Um, in Port Talbot, which I would draw a different lesson out of that because what the speech was called was Who's Recovery? And basically this you know, very intelligent uh, Bank of England chief economist recognised that he was completely out of touch with people in uh, society. You know, he spe- and as a technocrat, you, know, you can't blame him. I mean, he's supposed to speak to business people and chambers of commerce and so on, but he happened to go into another meeting with some you know, ordinary people and realised that there was no recovery going on in their mind. But I think the lesson drawn out of that is that it's not just the technocratic elite who are out of touch. But it's, why are the political elite uh, so out of touch? Because the politicians are saying exactly the same thing as Andy Haldane about the economy's doing well and we're in a a recovery and so on. Uh, Which links into this point, you know, why is it then that uh, the political elite need a wake-up call? Isn't this an indictment of just how, not just they've got bad policies, the establishment, but they are so out of touch? It's one thing for technocrats to be out of touch, but it's the political establishment. There is a huge chasm between them and the people who elect them, their constituents. The fact that they are unaware of what's going on in society is that damning indictment. And in that respect, I think that people are getting engaged. Uh, 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 A lot of people, a lot of individuals, a lot more people are engaged. At a time a few years ago, we were worrying about apathy and disengagement. The fact that there are a lot more individuals standing out and positively rejecting the establishment for being so out of touch, that, to me, is an unequivocal step forward, it gives us the basis, the opportunity for the debate of the ideas that need to work out what the, how to deal with the problems we've got. We have been discussing this um, uh, distrust of public towards the facts, uh, but actually I would like, would like to draw attention that not everything which is presented as a fact is actually a fact. And there is a big difference between the facts which were obtained using the scientific method and the facts which, were, which are presented as facts and are actually deduced for some, some rather vague assumptions. And obviously the, 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 the former, the facts which were obtained by the scientific method, they should come with the explanation of the methodology which was used to obtain uh, these, these facts. So would you, would you think that the sort of presentation of the facts with the, with the sort of methodology would, would, would improve the public trust towards, towards so-called facts and sort of return everything back towards... Uh, to, how it was before, how it sort of when the public was trusting the, the 
evidence and the so-called experts. Yeah, so you asked whether politicians, why are politicians so out of touch, but is it politicians who are out of touch or is it the citizenry who are out of touch? Um, we heard the gentleman <laughs> over there said that he asked, he invited a gentleman who voted leave to come speak at the meeting and he went and did yoga instead. And voter turnout has been dropping over the last number of decades. Um, is it our fault? You know, the establishment weren't born in sort of pods invented by scientists. They're us. They're the people that we elect. And it's up to us to make sure that they're representative of us. And they're not the ones out of touch. It's us who are out of touch. Okay, thank you. I don't work for the Barbican, but if people want a metaphor to try and help understand populism, there's an exhibition on here about the vulgar. And a lot of the exhibition, and everyone needs to wear clothes, but this is about who is entitled to wear clothes when, and, and explored the nature of vulgar and what it meant to be part of elite or part of the commonality and how you were judged by your, what you wear. And I think populism today is a little bit about what are you wearing and is it acceptable to people who choose the fashion of the day. I want to come down to um, what Ivan said earlier about empathy and um, the, uh, is it so ridiculous to believe that yes we have been out of touch with the other side of the political range but is it so ridiculous to think that we might be interested in listening to these people especially as we have no common place anymore where we can actually meet those and I'm always surprised to hear those words of like oh the left has to realize that um, they are hating all the rights maybe we are not um, just as a thought provoker. Um, I'll keep it brief. I was just wondering, we often hear about um, populism being a rejection of the political establishment and the media, but to what extent do you think on both the left and the right it's also, on a base level, a rejection of global capitalism in a way that people are very discontented with their economic situations and that perhaps neoliberalism and the free market isn't working for them? So I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that Ivan said, which is um, why isn't there empathy between different strands of society? We're not living in each other's shoes. People who live in our Daniel Blake are not living in the city. They can't empathise because they don't know. They're not in the same place. And also, this Brexit is about fear of the future rather than hope for the future. I think that's the key issue. The people who voted out and in other countries are being left behind. We are humanity. We're in this game together. We cannot survive without each other at different levels of society. So why are we not responding to that now? The Industrial Revolution brought us great things. The Technological Revolution is, about to, is bringing us great things. Our government is not leading us through those. They're so busy paying politics and power and war and economic games, they're not looking at what is happening in society. What is government about? It is governance and leading and guiding. Bruno, give us your final thought, please. OK. The other day I was talking to um, a Labour person, an MP, um, and they um, had gone up to um, Batley and Spen after the uh, murder of Joe Cox there. Um, in the referendum to campaign uh, for a Remain vote. And, and it, it told me this, this really telling story about they were out on a, on a council estate, knocking on people's doors, doing what democratic politicians should. And a woman um, answered uh, the door. Uh, she's very, very articulate and very, very passionate um, as a Leave vote. And people gathered around. A few people came out of their doors. The, the Labour canvassers uh, gathered around because it was a good public um, argument um, there and they were really sort of hitting her um, with, well, if you're working class, if you're living here on this estate, if you're economically precarious, why would you vote for uh, Brexit? Why would you vote uh, to make your future more 
uh, precarious. And she held out her arms and sort of shouted, Whoa! I could lose all this! Looking around this depressed <laughs> shithole um, in Bartley and Spen. And I think that really shows us why um, the Remain side uh, couldn't win. Because they couldn't say, imagine you could lose what you've got. It works so well for you, uh, doesn't it? And this was the first vote. Yeah, all right, it was 52% in, but that is a majority, do your maths. I didn't say it was the British people, I said it was 52% majority, and in the democracy we take decisions um, by a majority. This was the first vote in a generation where every single vote counted. The moment you knew it was leave, BBC's coverage on the night was absolutely brilliant, the moment you knew it was leave, when in Sunderland, uh, Nick Robinson was in the returns, the, the, the counting centre, and he said, God, I keep bumping into groups of people who haven't voted since 1983. They hadn't voted for 1983 because their opinions didn't count in the Labour Party. After then, um, there was no party representing them. In this vote, their vote counted. It really counted. That's why the registration was at a record level for this vote. It's why so many more people voted. It is also why it was a leave vote. And if you can't draw the lessons from that, and we can see from the very shrill cries and squeals um, from the allegedly uh, liberal uh, middle classes in this country, they're finding it very difficult to digest. Indeed, there really is a problem. But the problem is with them. It's not with the people who voted leave. It's not with the people who have the affrontery and the insolence to believe that institutions of government should represent them and work for them. Uh, Thank you very much, Ivan. Ivan. Thank you very much. I do believe that one of the interesting things and, and unfortunate which we're going to see with this populist moment, because it's not connected to any party particularly and so on, is going to be contested elections. Because we are saying basically the majority should be growth. Listen, we are calling Mr. Trump populist. Is he ready to recognize that the majority of the voters can go for the status quo, which they don't like, by the way? They don't like. I, I didn't see anybody very much in love with Hillary Clinton, but probably they don't like him more. So from this point of view is we are entering a democratic politics in which the losing party believes that they have a moral right to say this was not a fair loss. And this is changing politics. Because part of the advantage of democratic politics was that the governments, when they're winning, basically they expect the opposition to recognize the popular vote. And this is what is changing very much, because you have a lot of elections, a lot of opinion polling, you have referendum all the time. So from this point of view, every majority born of a vote is a 15 minutes majority. Then a next poll comes and people say, listen, did you read the last poll, 53% now are for staying? I do believe this is changing politics more than the ideology of any of the populist parties or populist leaders. And this is a new type of a politics. After depolitization of the 1990s, which I personally didn't like at all, you have a new type of a political polarization in which you do not have the right to be majority anymore. Nobody is ready to recognize the winning party, nevertheless, which it is as a majority. Uh, thanks very much, Ian. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a dangerous period, um, and you can see the kind of troubling forces that have been whipped up by politicians on the basis of a very vague 
very vague vote, which could have basically been treated as, you know, as your view on any number of things. If you look at the Ashcroft assessment, if you look at the Ashcroft analysis of the voting intentions, the end of it, the only conclusion you can really come to is a bunch of people will ask, are you happy with how things are right now? And they said, no, you know what, mate, we're not. That's really what that vote was. And now politicians and pundits have a great big pot of mandate paint. And they can paint whatever mandate they think that they can think up. Nigel Farage says there's a mandate for a points-based immigration system. I mean, he goes well beyond the freedom of movement stuff to suggesting that there is now public support for the specificity of his policies. That is what happens when you have a poll without any real specificity over what it is about. You can just take from it whatever democratic validity you want and implement it. And what is the kind of validity that they are espousing? One that is about division, one that is about the majority over the minority, one whose rhetoric has seen ministers deteriorate in their language to the point where we have Liam Fox calling European citizens who have lived in this country for years our best cards in negotiations. That we have David Davis, who is a Secretary of State, constantly talking about our own population, that wink-wink, dog-whistle nonsense, which we all know to take as some kind of allusion to indigenous populations, where we see a sudden shoot-up in hatred and in assaults against ethnic minorities in the wake of the vote, one which has still not reduced to this day. This is a dangerous and toxic moment, and the way for us to respond to it is to hook all of our thinking, all of our opinions, into empirical fact and into consideration for the individual over the collective. That is the only way that we're going to get through what is, I think, a very, very toxic moment in our history. Uh, thanks, Ian. Uh, Jill? Two thoughts to finish. First of all, a thought for Europe, since Claire told us we're international. The UK has always been a bit different to other EU countries because we've had a mainstream political party which has questioned our, uh, the validity of staying in Europe. Most other countries choose to ignore that, and I think Europe needs to look, and rather than decide that in order to contain things like Alternativa for Deutschland, Marine Le Pen, you have to, make, you have to really punish the UK to make... Sh- clear that leaving is a really miserable experience. Much better to think, actually, don't we have to look internally and think how we can reconnect Europe a bit more to our peoples, because a lot of them might actually have done the same thing if we'd given them a chance. That's my thought for Europe. The thought for the UK and our man with uh, electoral reform, I've hardly ever voted in a constituency where it's been worth voting. Uh, I've been in, you know, dominated by whatever. So I think it's right. we basically alienate most of the electorate and say your votes aren't worth anything most of the time. Uh, It's pretty appalling, I think, that people like UKIP, Greens or whatever, are so under, you know, Liberal Democrats, Tories in Scotland, Labour in Scotland, are so underrepresented in Parliament at the moment. So I think, actually think about, you know, do we need to rethink and move to electoral reform now? And also maybe have some Northern Tories. I mean, a government from Maidenhead, and whatever isn't really very healthy either if you want to reconnect back the politicians to the people. Thanks, Jill. And then finally, Nick. Well, well thank you to, to the audience, uh, to you, Claire, and my fellow panellists for what I think is a very... Uh, a discussion which I'll take a lot away from. Um, it, I can't speak for everybody in the room, Ian. I won't uh, sum up the mood except to say I think there has been a very useful discussion and, and I, think we're, you know, I think there seems to be consensus around your point, Claire, that, that while we may not be uh, entirely comfortable with the word populism, something is happening, something quite, uh, quite fundamental, something quite dramatic 
and we need to get a hand of it, a handle on it. Now, uh, I, I, I sort of threw out the possibility of a redemptive ending to this discussion at the beginning, so I feel that I'm duty bound to deliver one. Um, I, and, and I think it, 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 I'd, I'd see it really in Ian's point about about the principles of liberalism and the individual. Uh, and uh, you know, at various points in history, politicians uh, have realised that uh, that the way to unite the country is to talk to the individuals, to listen to individuals about their ideas. We had it in Australia in in 1949 when Robert Menzies was elected with a manifesto that appealed to the forgotten people. Uh, And he governed for 17 years after that. We had in in America in in the 80s uh, Reagan appealing to the forgotten Americans. Uh, And I think very much what we have now are the forgotten British, the forgotten Americans, the forgotten Europeans. These are people who feel they don't have a voice in the debate. And the task, I think, of politicians is to wear out some shoe leather, to get out and listen to people and not to be dismissive of their views, to listen to what they're actually saying Uh, and then address those things. I don't think there needs to be particularly what we might call a populist response to this. I mean, they they didn't necessarily build the wall uh, with Mexico, but they should should at the very least, I think, engage with people on the terms they want to talk about and then work out, you know, what the the realistic and, and, uh, and, and, and achievable political solutions are that will make people's lives better. Because in the end, uh, you know, the, the politician's job is, is to grow the country's pros- in, in prosperity and justice. And at various times, we've focused on one or the other. But I think at the moment, the crying need is for both. We need, uh, in, in Europe and in Australia, both a prosperous and more just society. Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks. Thanks to a fantastic uh, panel. Lots of passion, lots of debate. Uh, lots of disagreement but lots to think about thank you for listening to this institute of ideas podcast if you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast 